Among political issues that have been decided by Parliament in the last decade, few are as controversial as medical assistance in dying. And while many Canadians feel it has given loved ones a sense of autonomy and has spared them prolonged pain at the end of their lives, there are some in the medical community who say changes to legislation that expand the practice are a step too far. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Dr. Farouk Farouki, family care physician and freelance writer, joins me to discuss the current legislation, changes that could be coming, and why there is unease among the medical community and some families who have had loved ones who have died by maid. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Dr. Faruqi, just so listeners who may not be familiar with medical aid in dying, what is it and when was it first allowed in Canada? So medical assistance in dying came about really as the result of a Supreme Court decision. And that decision was Carter versus Canada in 2015. And at that time, what happened was the Supreme Court decided to decriminalize the act of a doctor essentially killing their patient. And it was left then to Parliament to enact a law. Mm-hmm. So following that Supreme Court decision, Bill C-14 was enacted in June 2016. What it essentially means is that Canadians then had the right to ask their doctors to be put to death mm-hmm. following certain criteria. What criteria was allowed under Bill C-14? I assume that we're talking about people who had terminal conditions, no prospect of a long life. I'm curious if you can fill us in on what was allowed under Bill C-14. So under Bill C-14, it was essentially adults, so people age 18 and above, with a severe terminal illness of sound mind, who decided that their suffering was grievous and irremediable. There needed to be two independent witnesses to corroborate the authenticity of the request. It needed to be a written request. There was a 10-day reflection period so that a person would have a chance to change their mind. And so it was essentially meant for people at the end of their lives who were suffering unbearably. In the last few years since Bill C-14 was enacted, we've seen some changes to the legislation. I wonder if you can walk us through what those changes look like. So what happened was when C-14 was passed, the government actually committed to doing a review after five years. So in June 2020, there was supposed to be a review of how this was working. In addition, they were supposed to be looking at the state of palliative care and mental health supports for Canadians. That review never happened because what happened before then was in 2019, the Quebec Superior Court released a judgment in the case of Truchon. What that essentially did was that this person, Truchon, he decided that he was going to challenge the constitutionality of the original law because he wasn't actually terminal. He had cerebral palsy. He was in a wheelchair. And the Quebec Superior Court decided that making someone's terminal condition an eligibility requirement was unconstitutional. So what happened then was the disability advocates actually decided that this was dangerous and that disabled people would be pressured to die. And they urged the federal government to appeal that ruling. But instead, what happened is the federal government introduced Bill C-7. And Bill C-7 has brought in considerable changes to the original legislation. 
what changes have been brought in under Bill C-7? So the most important change is that a person no longer needs to be actively dying to apply for MAID. It allows for people who are suffering unbearably from a condition which does not need to be fatal. And all of these criteria are actually subjective. So when I use the word unbearable suffering, that's something that the patient decides. It's not something that is subject to any sort of rigorous standard. So what it means basically is that someone who is suffering and decides that their suffering can't be alleviated, they're allowed to apply to have a physician or a nurse practitioner administer death to them. So that's the most significant change under C7. There are some other changes as well. So at first, there were the two independent witnesses. Mm -hmm. Under C7, that went from two independent witnesses to one witness who was allowed to be part of the healthcare team. There was also the elimination of the reflection period. The track two patients, which are the patients who are those who are not terminal, they get a minimum of 90 days to obtain needed specialist support and treatment, but they don't have to avail themselves of any available treatment before opting for MAID. So those are some of the key differences between C7 and C14. As a doctor and someone who's worked in family practice and emergency medicine and who's done palliative care as part of their family practice... What are your thoughts on MAID in general, and what about the changes brought in under Bill C-7? I think if you ask physicians across the board, for millennia, thousands of years, doctors have been taught to cure, comfort, and care. And within the space of a few years, we're now being told that it's okay to kill our patients, which is really a complete departure of what we're trained to do. Really, there's been a 180 degree shift in what medicine is all about. And I see it as a real turning point. Palliative care, which is something that a lot of people don't really understand, it's been conflated with euthanasia. And I use the term euthanasia deliberately because the terminology is very fuzzy in Canada. We use the term medical aid in dying. Other jurisdictions, especially in in Europe, use the term euthanasia. There's another term called physician-assisted dying, which doesn't happen very much in Canada, which really is defined as a doctor, say, prescribing a medication that the patient then goes and buys from the pharmacy and administers themselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't really understand what MAID is. Some palliative care physicians have said that some patients will actually refuse palliative care because they think they're being offered death while others don't understand that MAID is actually a lethal injection. So it's a very complex area because the other concepts that come in really are the concepts of personal autonomy and choice and dignity. So there's a lot of different concepts floating around and people define them differently. And that makes the whole sort of landscape a little bit fuzzy. But to get back to your original question, I think that doctors generally aren't very political. You know, there was a long, long history of paternalism in medicine. And this whole idea of personal autonomy of the patient deciding what's right for them, it was kind of a um, a reaction to that paternalism. Mm-hmm. And a lot of doctors, I think, are afraid of sort of going against the prevailing narrative now, which is that this is the law, this is what's allowed, and and our individual sort of consciences shouldn't really be brought into the equation. 
You mentioned the idea of conscience. That's a debate in other areas of healthcare as well, whether a patient should be allowed to get birth control, whether a patient should be able to avail themselves of abortion services, and whether the doctor should be able to refuse to refer or to prescribe in those cases. Do you feel that there's a consistency in the debate around it, that there are some who would have no issue prescribing, say, birth control to a teenager or a young woman who would like to avoid unwanted pregnancy, but then a doctor who may be opposed, say, to participating in MAID? I think in terms of contraception and birth control, there I think there are very few physicians who would be opposed to prescribing contraception. I think in terms of social mores, I think we've really shifted from that. Mm-hmm. This is something that's really very, very different. MAID is actually enshrined under the Canada Health Act. It's a universal health right. And it's the only um, medical act, if we can call it a medical act, that's actually legislated to be available everywhere. Nothing else is. Palliative care, access to chemotherapy, for example, for cancer. So it's a very different health right. And also because it's so final, it's permanent, that I think what the issue for me has been and for many other doctors has been that there really hasn't been a lot of debate around the topic. And doctors feel very afraid to speak out about it. In fact, in my piece, you know, I discussed some of the the impact on physicians. And one of the biggest impacts has been that there has been a lot of what one practitioner actually called sort of a civil war within medicine, where some people are committed to MAID and feel that it's something that we need to be doing to help people. And, you know, they're very sincere in their intentions. And then you have a spectrum of people who may feel that, well, this may be okay for people who are at the end of their lives. And then you have people who say, well, okay, now we have C7 and it's really loosening the criteria. And it's not only C7, there's a sunset clause that was attached to C7 within just a few weeks. And that pertains to mental illness as sole criteria for expansion of MAID. And what that means is that as of March, 2023, which is only a year away, people who have mental illness as a sole criteria can ask for MAID. And that's got psychiatrists divided as well. Mm-hmm. The other things that are happening are that there are committees, parliamentary committees, looking at expansion to mature minors, so children essentially, and also looking at advanced directives for people who have dementia. So it's more than just C7, it's whatever else is coming down the pipeline. Yeah, And I guess the issue is really, it, it seems like we haven't really thought this through and thought through what the effects are going to be on society and on doctors and nurses who are providing the service. Do you know of medical professionals who were, I don't know if ardent supporters is the right word, but were in favor of MAID as it was initially proposed under Bill C-14, who are against it now or have raised concerns about it now due to the changes under Bill C-7 and other changes that may be coming? Yes. In fact, before C-7 became law, there were doctors who were providing MAID, and some were saying, you know, I'm not sure if this legislation is passed, whether we're going to be seeing that same sort of uptake. And since it's been passed, so it's been, you know, close to a year that this legislation was passed, there are physicians who've stepped away from it. For example, Dr. Sandy Buckman, who I reference in my piece, he's a MAID provider in the GTA area. Mm -hmm. And he's now decided that that's something that he can't do, that that's his ethical boundary. 
I've also spoken to Dr. Stephanie Green, who is the head of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. And she wasn't able to give me numbers, but she did tell me that for some of the CAMAP members, the addition of these track two patients have caused a moral tension, and some of them have stepped away from providing MAID for this particular subset of patients. Hmm. And another really interesting set of numbers came from Dr. Vera Naik, who's the medical lead of the MAID team at the Ottawa Hospital. So in their center, there are about 30 clinicians who are MAID providers. Of those 30 clinicians, only five will look at track two patients. Looking at the people who are proponents of MAID, who provide or assess a patient's readiness for MAID, what do they say about it that it offers patients that makes it an important piece in this continuum of care for people at the end of their lives? I think really what they're looking at is that medical care should be patient-centered and we should be looking at patient suffering and being compassionate. So I think that's what's driving these practitioners. But the real principle I think that's driving it is looking at the patient's autonomy and centering the patient's autonomy and doctors or society stepping away and saying to ourselves, well, really, this is about what the patient wants. In my conversations, that's what comes up the most often is that patients are suffering. They have the right to determine what happens to them. And it's our duty as medical professionals to help them and not abandon them. That's what I've been hearing. We'll be right back. You spoke with family and loved ones who feel upset about how the process went for them. And you also spoke with prospective patients of MAID. Right. Where do their views diverge? What are their stories? Well, there's a few prospective patients that I've spoken to. One of them is from London, Ontario. She's a retired teacher who suffers from chronic pain. She has one son who lives in the United States, and she didn't want to use her real name. She tells me that she's a practicing Catholic. She watches Mass virtually, regularly. But she says that when the time comes, she's going to opt for MAID. And her reasoning is that it's not that she wants to be offered death. But she says that society doesn't value people like her who don't contribute materially anymore. She considers herself part of the ranks of the of the growing number of people who are elderly or frail, who can't offer society anything. And she says that because of that, she will opt for MAID when she can no longer bear her pain. Mm-hmm. And she recognizes that, you know, it goes contrary to her beliefs. And one of the family members that I've spoken to is the family members of Alan Nichols, who died in 2019. So Alan was an interesting case because He was a person who was vulnerable. He suffered from lifelong depression. He was looked after essentially by his parents and his siblings. And Alan would periodically go into bouts of severe depression, but he would always come out of them. What happened in 2019 is he went into one of his regular bouts of depression. The RCMP were called by his neighbor. They found him delirious and dehydrated. He was admitted under the Mental Health Act of BC. This happened in uh, Chilliwack, BC. So he was admitted involuntarily. After five days in the psychiatric unit, he was discharged to the regular unit. The family wasn't really told what was going on. Alan, which was very uncharacteristic for him, he refused to speak or see his family. 
four days before he died, a doctor called Gary Nichols, Alan's brother, to say that Alan was going to be put to death by maid in four days' time. The family was stunned because they said, well, how can this be? He was brought in suicidal. And the response from the hospital was, you know, this is Alan's decision. We didn't have to tell you. He didn't have to tell you. So you're lucky that, you know, he agreed to tell you. But the interesting thing about that was that Alan, according to the family, and according to, you know, other stakeholders who know about this case, Alan was vulnerable. In 2019, C7 hadn't passed. So a person had to be terminal. And he wasn't terminal. So the family since then has been sort of struggling with what happened to him. They've gone to different institutions. They've gone to the RCMP. They've gone to the office of the coroner. They've gone to the ministries of health, both provincial and federal. And they've really been told that whichever institution they've appealed to for a review of Alan's case, they've been told that, you know, we don't have jurisdiction. You need to talk to somebody else. And for Alan's family, it really is about, number one, Alan was vulnerable and this shouldn't have happened. And number two, they feel that the principle of patient confidentiality has actually been abused so that the people who looked after Alan all his life weren't able to give their thoughts and perspectives to the people who decided that Alan was eligible to receive MAID. Mm -hmm. And so that's been their experience. One of the arguments in favor of MAID is that it becomes the only option for people because other care, such as palliative care or mental health care, isn't available. So the solution is providing better care for people. But how does that serve people who are currently unable to access care and for whom enhanced care may not be available in the short term? And especially for people who may be dealing with, you know, chronic depression and, you know, under the mental health sphere and the mental health end of things that they may not be able to access better care. And, and for them, made may be the better solution than suffering. That's a tricky question because what's happened is MAID, like I said, it's legislated to be available everywhere. MAID is cheap mm -hmm. compared to actually offering continuing care, which is can be very expensive. And even before MAID was legalized, psychiatrists that I've spoken to estimate that only 30% of people who suffer from mental health issues ever actually get the care that they need. And, you know, as a family doctor for over 30 years, a lot of what we do is mental health care. And we know that we can't get our patients to see psychiatrists. It's virtually impossible. And so what happens is that you have this service that's available, made, it's cheap, it's available. And so we can offer that, but we can't offer services that actually care for patients, which becomes really problematic because what we're really saying to people who are vulnerable is that we can't offer you the care that you really need. But we can offer you this expedited sort of service that'll solve your immediate problem. And that may solve that problem for that one person. But then we forget the ramifications down the line. And I've talked to a number of people in this debate. And their concern is that once that becomes normalized, once MAID becomes sort of just another option in care, that we're going to, as a society, decide, well, this is cheap, it's expeditious, it solves a lot of problems. And then we don't really have to put in the investments that we need into caring for the vulnerable members of our population. For example, disability activists who testified against the proposed law 
in Senate testimony and so on. This is what they were afraid of. And what they're saying is that society has decided that our lives are less valuable and we don't really need to be offered care. We can be offered made instead. And when we talk about things like free choice and autonomy, then the question becomes, well, is this really a free choice? Mm -hmm. If this is the only option we have, because obtaining specialist help is going to take a year or longer, and I'm suffering right now, is that really a free choice? So I think that's the more complicated response that we don't really hear when we're debating this issue. In your piece for the Post, you talk about personal autonomy versus relational autonomy, and you just mentioned autonomy a moment ago. What does that mean, like the debate between personal autonomy and relational autonomy, and why does it matter in an issue like MAID? It matters a lot because individual autonomy really, I think, is the notion that an individual is independent of others and their community and that they have an absolute right to make decisions about themselves. Mm-hmm. And autonomy is something that is a positive thing. I think we all want autonomy. But the question is, how far do we take that autonomy? In my opinion, it's an impoverished view of the human being. We're social beings. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. We've seen how much people are suffering because of lockdowns and mandates. People are suffering because we're social beings. We're part of a whole. And Individual autonomy, I think it became such an important principle because it was part of the pushback against the paternalism of the medical profession, and rightly so in past decades. But I believe that it has its limitations. Dr. Heidi Jantz is an academic and she's a disability rights advocate, and she calls independence sort of a nonsensical notion. What she says is that whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, we're all interdependent. And so then we come to relational autonomy. So what is relational autonomy? It's a conception of autonomy that places the individual within a socially embedded network of others, where relationships with family, community, and society all come into being. If a person decides to undergo MAID, that's a personal decision, and it doesn't affect anybody else, we know that that's not true. It affects everyone. It affects your family, it affects your friends, it affects greater society. When we see that, okay, if this is something that the individual wants to do, then we start accepting it and normalizing it. So it affects everyone. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about natural dying and relational autonomy. You know, no one really knows in our society what natural dying looks like anymore. I think the general public doesn't really see it. Even doctors don't know what natural dying looks like anymore. I started doing palliative care as part of my family practice, and that's when I really understood what a natural death looks like. And because we don't know what it is, we're afraid of it. And I think that fear is natural. Mm -hmm. But if you sit by the bedside of someone who's dying and do that for days or even weeks, it is challenging, it's hard, it's uncomfortable, but I think there's a value in it. Because we're being with someone at the end of their life when they're most vulnerable, when they really need us, when we can't cure them, but we can comfort. And that's something that I think is really lost from the equation, how important that is. And that sort of brings me back to that relational autonomy, where it's not just about that individual, but it's about everyone around them and how we care for the people who are really vulnerable and need someone with them when they're at the end. Maid is the horses out of the barn. Like, I don't feel that you'd see a federal government come in 
and make it illegal. You know, it's been a number of years now since it's been legalized. Are there policy changes that you feel would resolve some concerns among medical professionals that either weren't addressed under Bill C-14 or that raised their concerns after Bill C-7? And looking more globally, are there lessons that we can learn from other places that have legalized euthanasia or made or, you know, whatever they call it? Yeah. Well, to answer the last part of your question first, if we look at places like the Netherlands, where they legalized euthanasia in 2002, I think we should be looking at other jurisdictions because, you know, we're all sort of influenced by what's going on globally. So far, MADE is not legal in most parts of the world, but the Netherlands probably has had the most experience with it, along with Belgium, which legalized euthanasia soon after the Netherlands did. And in terms of things that are coming down the pipeline now, such as psychiatric euthanasia. There is a gentleman called Bedouin Chabot. He is actually a psychiatrist and sort of a pioneer of the euthanasia movement in the Netherlands. And he's actually articulating some real concern about what's happening in the Netherlands, especially with respect to psychiatric maid, because the incidence of euthanasia there has gone up every year. He's not particularly concerned about that. What he's concerned about is the fact that euthanasia for mental illness has become more and more normalized, that psychiatric care isn't really available to people in the Netherlands. And instead, what's happening is that there are people who are availing themselves of euthanasia by psychiatrists who have no therapeutic relationship with the patient who are working at end-of-life clinics, which are now providing a significant number of um, euthanasia cases. And that's what's concerning him. So here's a person who doesn't believe that euthanasia is wrong, but he's really concerned about what's happening there, especially in terms of mental illness. And if you look at the Dutch experience, people there who've had euthanasia include people who have personality disorders, people who had autism. There was a gentleman who was euthanized because he wasn't happy with the outcome of his sex change surgery. And those kind of cases should give us pause Because with this coming up in Canada in March 2023, we really need to look at what the criteria are going to be, who decides what's unbearable suffering. One of the issues that some of the psychiatrists that I've spoken to have brought up is that MAID is supposed to be for people who have irremediable conditions. That means conditions that would never get better. Mm -hmm. If you look at psychiatry, you know, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, you know, the three biggies. No one knows how these illnesses work. Nobody knows the pathophysiology behind them, like we know for, say, congestive heart failure or for, say, lung cancer, where we can sort of predict when someone's going to get better or they're not going to get better. That doesn't exist for psychiatric conditions. So how can we actually then decide that this is okay? Because we would never have known whether, you know, patient A would have gotten better or not whether their depression would have responded to a different therapeutic treatment, whether, you know, their schizophrenia would have become not curable, but at least treatable. So that's one of the issues there. And in terms of policy changes, you're right, the genie's out of the bottle. It's very difficult to backtrack and say, well, hold on a second. Maybe we sort of rushed this and we didn't think things through. I think now what could be done is really taking a pause and really inviting all the necessary stakeholders to actually talk about what MADE is doing. 
how effective is it? What is it doing? What are its unintended consequences? You know, when the government invited people to comment on the legislation, they gave people 14 days to respond. 14 days is almost laughable. You know, you may be aware that there is an individual, I forget his name, who said, you know, I went on there and I submitted my comments 14 or 15 times. Those were all counted in the 300,000 responses. So how reliable was that poll? Mm -hmm. I think those are the issues that we need to actually acknowledge, that this was probably quite rushed. No one really looked at the impact of what this was going to do. No one looked at things like healthcare savings. You know, it sounds really crass to talk about it, but there are real healthcare savings involved with offering made versus offering real end-of-life care, therapeutic care. These are all issues that no one really wants to talk about because they're uncomfortable to talk about. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I can't answer your question in a very neat way because this is a messy issue. I know there's lots of pieces to it and lots of perspectives on it, and I appreciate you taking the time. Dr. Faruqi, your piece available at thenationalpost.com. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Farouk Faruqi. You can read her full piece at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.